money's making commandments, but I'll obey whatever I need to do to get a hold You'll of it. You'll obey right? it right off the edge of the cliff. And yeah, same with everything else I will, that I just listed, right? Money is I mean, what I will love. Money is what I will serve. They're yeah. all tied together. In other words, faith is at the heart of every person's search for happiness is the point that I'm making. Faith is at the heart of it. Welcome to another Taste Great, Less Filling episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and we are with the Coming Home Network. If you're interested in what we have to offer, we have, well, we have quite a bit to offer. We have tons and tons of resources for free available at chnetwork.org. For anyone who is interested in the Catholic faith at any level, Ken was a Baptist pastor. I played a bunch of underground Christian indie rock shows. Both of us studied, read, prayed a lot, ended up Catholic. And if you want to find out why, or if you're on a similar journey, reach out to us at chnetwork.org. Ken, how are you? I'm doing very well today. Thank you, Matt. How are you? All right. I'm doing well. I like to think of this program as sort of like the champagne of apologetics YouTube series. Well, that's nice of you. Yeah. Well, we have been talking a lot about what you used to believe, especially what I believe to an extent Mm -hmm. as someone who came from a Reformed theological background about how we are saved. And in the past couple of episodes, we've been getting into what the Catholic Church presents as the way that man enters into full yes. communion with God. So yeah. start us off. Okay. Well, yes, well, we're about uh, 13 episodes now in, into a series that we began on sola fide, the material principle of the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we spent a lot of that time critiquing the, um, the, the Reformation view. And then we sort of turned the tables and we've begun to describe the alternative or the, the Catholic way of looking at it. And what we did last week, Matt, if you can remember that far back, um, is we looked at the Old Testament story of the Exodus and of the journey of God's people to the promised land. And we looked at it as a type or as a pattern, as a, a blueprint, if you will, of how we ought to think about the New Testament teaching on salvation. Okay? In other words, from the Catholic perspective, the New Testament teaching on salvation, on justification, is the fulfillment of the type, which is the Old Testament story of the Exodus and the journey. Old Covenant Israel was delivered from a literal slavery in Egypt. The New Covenant Israel, the spiritual Israel, the church, is delivered from a spiritual slavery to sin and to death. Their deliverance began with the sacrifice of a lamb, the Passover lamb, the blood spread on the doorposts, the lentils of their homes. You remember the story from Exodus. Ours begins with the sacrifice of the true lamb of God, Jesus the Christ. The Old Covenant Israel were baptized right away into Moses. We are baptized into Christ. They had to cross a literal wilderness to enter a literal promised land across the literal Jordan River. Um, we cross a spiritual wilderness of this life, and we cross over a, well, if you will, a spiritualized uh, Jordan River that, you know, that, that the old gospel songs sang so much about, crossing over to Jordan, into eternal life with God. 
they, that is the old covenant Israel, they had the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night to lead them through this wilderness on their journey to their inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit leading us. They had a method by which sins could be forgiven and atonement made along the way. We have the same thing, the fulfillment of it, that is. We have the the, the full-blown new covenant version of what they had only in picture and type and, and um, well, again, blueprint. In order to enter the, their rest in the land of promise, to sum it up, they had to persevere in faith and obedience, and so do we. All right, so, now, Ken, let me pause you right yeah. there, because if I were to excerpt what you just said, it would fit very nicely into a sermon from almost any Protestant church that you could possibly imagine, except for maybe that last part about faith and obedience. Everything you just said is something that would be consistent with mm-hmm. what almost every Christian would believe in terms of how God spoke to his people and led his people yeah. in the old covenant it, it, and it, how it, he leads us today. It's it, This is textbook Christianity 101 stuff so far. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it is. And that's the point, really, is that this is a an image, the Exodus and the journey. These are images that everyone will talk about as having been fulfilled in our lives. The difference is that the Catholic teaching actually sees the New Covenant teaching on salvation as being a direct fulfillment of this, not an alteration of it in any radical way, certainly not a reversal of it. Whereas in the Protestant view, you could say, yes, there's a way in which we do all these things, that is what we do in our lives mirrors or the fulfillment of what they did, but there's a big difference. They had to persevere in faith and obedience to the end in order to receive the blessing. There was no crediting of the blessing to them ahead of time. Whereas in the New Testament, the Reformation view would say, the moment we believe, the whole thing is credited to us, and then we live out this, um, you know, the faith and the obedience, um, as it were, um, as a statement of gratitude to God for having saved us, not in order to reach the promised land. That's the big difference. Yeah, that's specifically the way that those who come, who are descended from the the fathers of the Reformation, uh, the Luthers and the Calvins would articulate that. So, yes, yeah. okay. and in in Catholic theology, then justification is the word that is used to describe the entire process by which we are forgiven our sins and made fit for heaven. It describes this entire path, if you will, the path that one must take and persevere in to the end. This is the this is what the doctrine of justification covers. Okay, now off on something else that is very very important to me. Um, because I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out, okay? When we look at the various ways in which the call of the gospel is expressed in the New Testament, I think we find support for the Catholic conception of salvation as faith and obedience persevered in all of that. Okay, you read the New Testament, sometimes the call of the gospel is the call to believe. You know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, that kind of thing. But at other times, the call is to repent and be baptized. Um, as Peter said at the end of the very first sermon of Christian history, when the crowd was cut to the heart and said, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. Okay. At other times, the call of the gospel is the call to follow, take up your cross and follow. At other times, it's to obey or to abide in Christ, even to love. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul describes conversion as a turning from idols to serve the living God. He says, you turn from idols, you Thessalonians. You turn from your idols to serve the living God. Now, for a long time, 
you know, as a Protestant, of course, I believe that faith is the thing that really stands out. You believe and you're justified, you're saved, and then all the rest of these sort of follow under the under the canopy of sanctification, not under the canopy of justification. Well, for a long time, I wondered about how to understand all of these various commands as expressing one essential call. And this is this is where I've been in so many debates, especially during my time as a Christian of a general evangelical stripe, trying to you know, butt heads with other people who would say, seize on any one of those phrases you just said Mm -hmm. and say, this is the way that you're saved. And what you end up with is pitting certain passages of scripture against one another. And whatever fits your particular theology, you explain the other things away. That's exactly right. But as you're about to say them in terms, yeah, you're not talking about different things in each of these passages. Okay. So for a long time reading these, I, I spent time wondering how to understand all of them as essentially saying the same thing, as expressing one essential call. And this is how I've come to make sense of it, all right? And I want to kind of walk you through it. Um, there's a passage in Blaise Pascal's work, The Ponces, that hit me way back when I was in seminary and has been very important in my life. Here's the passage. I, I'm reading from Blaise Pascal, the 17th century Catholic philosopher and mathematician. He, he says, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Okay, so he begins by saying, in everything you do, Matt Swaim, and everything I do, Ken Hensley, Pascal says, you and I are seeking happiness. And of course, he doesn't mean it in the shallow sense. He means it in the deep sense, satisfaction, fulfillment, ultimate happiness. Okay, and yet he goes on to explain that most of us never find what we're looking for, and we wind up complaining that what we imagined might bring us happiness hasn't. So what's the problem, according to Pascal? Where is happiness to be found? What is the mistake that we're all making? Well, this is what Pascal goes on to say. All complain, princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old and young, strong and weak. Again, sounds like a Dr. Seuss passage to me a little bit. Learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, of all countries, all times, all ages, and all conditions. Everyone complains. And then he says, what is it then that this desire that we have for happiness and this inability that we seem to have to find it, what is it that they proclaim to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remained to him only the mark and empty trace, which, here's the key, he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss inside of us can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, by God himself. And according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which agrees entirely with Pascal, I I would note, You and I have been created for loving friendship with God, and only in this will you and I find the happiness and peace that we never stop searching for. In fact, this is one of the very first things that the Catechism tells us, and I quote from it quickly, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will we find the truth and happiness, that is, will man find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for? And that's in paragraph 27, which if you know how many paragraphs there are, 
in the catechism yeah. of the Catholic Church. That means it's very early on. Yeah, in fact, I'm sort of remembering this off the top of my head, but if you turn to, there's an introduction, but if you turn to part one, and you turn to section one, and then chapter one, th this is where it begins, okay? Now, I want you to notice something, because this, this may seem like we've gone way off the subject, but I want you to notice something. Every one of us, according to Pascal then, in everything you and I do, we're seeking happiness. Well, notice something. In that seeking, you and I are always trusting in something. Well, we're always trusting in someone um, with the hope that that thing or that person will bring us the happiness that we're looking for. And whatever we trust, inescapably, this is what we follow. That counts if you're following, uh, in my case, the Cincinnati Bengals. Right, or that counts if you're following yeah. Pepsi and Doritos. That counts if you're following methamphetamines or booze. That counts in everything. Yeah, whatever you trust to bring you happiness is what you inescapably will follow, what you will love, what you will obey, what you will serve. All of those terms that we find in the New Testament. I mean, if money is what I trust, then money is what I will follow. That is, I'll chase after it. Money's what I will obey. You know, me, not that money's making commandments, but I'll obey whatever I need to do to get a hold You'll of it. You'll obey right? it right off the edge of the cliff. And yeah, same with everything else I will, that I just listed, right? Money's I mean, what I will love. Money is what I will serve. They're yeah. all tied together. In other words, faith is at the heart of every person's search for happiness is the point that I'm making. Faith is at the heart of it. And all of these other ways in which the call of the gospel comes to us, all of them flowed naturally from faith. This, I think, is exactly why we can read the New Testament and find that the, the condition for the inheritance of the promise of eternal life is expressed in all of these different ways. And, and I think, importantly, I think this is why the, I think conversion can be best explained and described as Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, because conversion entails a turning from idols to serve the living God. That, that's what conversion is. It's a turning away from whatever you and I have been trusting or attempted to trust, tending to trust to bring us happiness, to orient ourselves toward God now, that God will bring us the happiness that we never stop searching for. Like the Catechism says, God never stops reaching out to us, and only in God will we find this truth and happiness that we never stop searching for. That's what conversion is. And that's why conversion is not something as, you know, like, okay, believe this story. I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus died and rose again from the dead. If you believe this story, now you're justified. No, it's deeper and it's richer than that. It's about, well, it's about all of this. It's about the search for happiness, the fact that we all are trusting in something, and that to convert means to turn from those idols to put our trust in the living God, or as Paul says, to serve the living God. And this is not something that we do one time. No, it's not. And this is why that image of the people of Israel is so important to help us understand this, because when are the Israelites justified? Is it when they cross through the Red Sea? Well, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. That's a big turning point, right? A fairly large uh, you know, new day yeah. for them has dawned. But as uh, so many apologists who are a lot smarter than I am have said, you know, that part was about God getting Israel out of Egypt. The whole rest of the journey in the desert is about getting Egypt out of Israel and all the things that they had held yes. on to, all the idolatry, all the trusting in false uh, gods, trusting in their own, you know, 
instincts to that they knew what was better for them than God did or or any of it. That had to be weeded out over the course of that time between then and into the promised land. And so, yes, exactly. You can't say, well, they were justified when they spread the uh, Passover blood or they were justified when they went through. Or they, you know, it, it's the whole thing. It, it, it's the whole thing. And in fact, this is an aside quickly, but this makes sense of that passage of, of the rich young ruler who says, well, I've done all that. I've kept the commandments from, from my birth up. But Jesus lo- looks into his heart. Jesus sees this young man who, like everyone, is seeking after happiness. And he also sees the idol that this young man has, that he's put his hope in riches. And so Jesus puts his finger on that and basically says, can you turn from this idol to serve the living God? If you can, come and follow me. And, and the man, can't he can't do it. Not in that moment, at least. Okay, next week, Matt, what I want to do is I want to look at the Council of Trent and how it describes what happens in justification, the Catholic view. But what I want to do with the rest of our time today is I, I want us to look at three of the most common objections that are raised to this entire way of thinking about justification, salvation as a path requiring perseverance and faith and obedience and turning and serving and all the rest, okay? And um, the first one is this. The first objection goes something like this, and we've heard it said in a million different ways. But if we have to turn from our idols and follow Christ in order to enter eternal life, then salvation is not a gift, but it becomes something we've earned. It becomes something we've achieved, something in which we could boast. Now, the first thing I want to simply point out is that as logical as this sounds, it is simply not the logic of the Bible. It's not the logic of Scripture. We've looked at these guys a million times in the past, and we'll look at them quickly again. We know that Noah had to obey in order to be delivered through the flood. He had to build the ark. We know that. We know that Abraham had to actually leave his country and his kinsmen and follow in order to receive the promise of the land. We know that Naaman the Syrian had to go, and he had to dip himself in the Jordan seven times in order to be cleansed of his leprosy. And yet, in none of these cases, is there any sense communicated that these men thereby earned God's blessing and had reason to boast? Not, not a bit of it. In fact, when you ask the question, what's the first thing Noah does after the flood subsides? What's the first thing he does? He goes out. He builds an altar. He builds an altar and he offers sacrifice to God. What's the first thing Abraham does once he has traveled and entered into the land of Canaan? Same thing. He built an altar. He offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in fact, even in the Naaman story, what's the first thing that Naaman did after being cleansed of his leprosy? We read that he returned to Elisha, the prophet, and he said to him, I'm quoting, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. He doesn't return to Elijah and say, look what I did. Look, look what amazing guy I am. I can't believe that my obedience has earned me this cleansing. He returns to Elijah to say, okay, you know, I, I lay it all down. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept my gift. And this now, goes back to something you were saying earlier when you say, if I go to my doctor and I say, I've got this condition and my doctor says to me, take this medicine and you will be fine. And I take it as directed and I am healed. I don't go around saying, dude, Check out how amazing I swallowed that pill. 
you know, instead I'm going to be like, this guy knows yeah. what's going on. You guys got to go talk to this doctor, right? That's ex- that is exactly right. Um, we covered this in another way some, some time back, but yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, I think there are two reasons and the one you just mentioned is the first, there are two reasons that God's people are not made proud by, by their obedience. If I can put it that way, there are two reasons that they're not made proud by their obedience. The first is because their obedience is an obedience of faith, which you just described. And I'll describe it in using name and think of it. If I'm a leper and someone tells me, hey, just go down and dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll come up clean. And I go down to the river and I do it and I come up healed. You know, the very last thing that's going to cross my mind is to begin boasting about how I cleansed myself. And you've given the illustration of the doctor and the patient. That, that's exactly right. The obedience that flows from humble faith, it's a particular kind of obedience. It's an obedience that actually humbles the person and results in thanksgiving, like Naaman coming and saying, can I offer you a gift? It's not an obedience that results in pride because it's an obedience rooted in humble faith. Okay, that's the first. But I think there's another reason that God's people are not made proud by their obedience. And it's, it's the one that, every, that comes to everyone's mind and is clear and simple. It's because God's people know that their obedience, like their faith, is the result of God's gracious work within them and not something they have conjured up by their own power. God's people know intuitively that they have not raised themselves up by their own bootstraps, but even their obedience is the work of God in them. And now, maybe you didn't experience this. I don't think you would have in your holiness Methodist kind of tradition, but this is something that has confused me, and it confuses me to this day about this particular objection that is made among many Protestants. And it it goes like this. You see, Protestants have no problem with the fact that they have to believe in order to receive, you know, believe in order to receive, or that they have to accept Christ as their personal Savior. They have no problem with this. And the reason is because they say, well, faith is a a gift of God. Since faith is a gift from God, then it's not an issue that I have to believe, that I have to receive. I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't view that as a work. I don't view that as something I'm having to do because it's a gift of God. To which I respond, what if obedience is the gift of God? What if both faith and the obedience that flows from faith and the serving and the loving and the following, what if all of it is God's gift, God's the result of God's working in us? If that's the case, then I, I like to say to my Protestant friends, why do you have no problem with faith being required? Because you view it as God's gift. And then you just go, you go totally insane when someone says that following Christ is required, or that serving is required, or that loving or obeying is required, given that they're both the gift of God. Well, and not only that, Ken, back it up a little further. The fact that you have the ability to reason any of this out is a gift of God. The fact that you have breath in your lungs to say, I believe, is a gift mm-hmm. of God. The fact that you have a pulse to uh, you know, be alive when you do this is the gift of God. And you know, I've been in these head game conversations with some of like the hardcore, like ultra- Calvinists who say yeah. that, well, uh, you know, I'll use the analogy of, yeah, well, it's a gift, but you got to open the package, right? And they'll say, no, 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 no. It is God who even makes you open the package? I'm like, well, but you show up, have to at least show up to the Christmas party, right? And they're like, no, but it is God who orchestrates your showing up. And it's so far 
they take it yeah. so far back to where ultimately it's so completely deterministic that it erases the very concept of free will at all. So it does not give glory to God. It is just any more than when I, you know, play G.I. Joe's, you know, any G.I. Joe a move around can take any glory in whatever thing that he does because it's just my hand forcing him to do it anyway. You know, and if I were to turn the G.I. Joe around mm -hmm. and make it say, I love you, Matt, would the G.I. Joe be saying that? No, it'd be me saying, I love myself. You're going to the ultimate presuppositions here because God is the giver of life. Yeah, and God gives us the ability to think and to reason and the ability to turn and the ability. So if God is giving us these gifts, then why would they lead to boasting anyway? Why would they? I mean, doesn't Paul say somewhere, you know, um, do you have, I mean, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, then why do you boast as though you had not received it? Remember what Ezekiel 36 told us about God's gift? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and move you. It's all God's doing. It's all the work of God in us. And so the objection that this would lead to boasting and whatnot is just unbiblical. Okay, second obj objection which you hinted at in a couple of words you said a few minutes ago. Second objection. But if our justification were in any manner whatsoever dependent on what we do, then God would not get all the glory. And God is so clear in saying, my glory I will not give to another. Okay, this is how many, many Protestants think about this and see this. John Piper, as I've mentioned before, wrote a book defending justification as the imputation, the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness, apart from anything we have to do. And in his introduction, he explains his motive for defending this particular doctrine. This is what he says, I'm quoting, I am jealous for Christ to get all the glory he deserves in the work of justification. And so justification has to be the legal crediting so that all the work is Christ and he receives all the glory. Um, along the same lines, Luther emphasized how important it is that we remain entirely passive in justification. This is what Luther said. All that man has to do is remain passive. He must not attempt to do anything himself for his salvation. This would be presumption. Now, again, I thought like this for many years, Matt. After all, it sounds reasonable on the face, doesn't it? It just sounds reasonable to say that in order for God to get all the glory, God must do the work. God must do all the work. The only problem is, again, this notion, the first thing I noticed was that it's not biblical. It's not biblical again. Back to Noah. I mean, imagine God saying to Noah, okay, Noah, a flood is coming, an ark needs to be built, but in order to make sure that I receive all the glory for this great work of salvation, you assemble your family, you sit down there, you know, over there under a tree, and I will build the ark. Or imagine a God saying to Abraham, okay, I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance, and I'm going to make you into a great people, but to make sure that I receive all the glory for it, I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to simply throw you from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. You must remain fun. entirely I mean, passive. What's that? It'd be fun to be kind of launched that way, I suppose. It'd be kind of fun, yeah. But Abraham, you must remain entirely passive, so I'm just going to throw you. Okay, so the idea again, it turns out to not be biblical. But on a deeper level, it's not even reasonable. 
I mean, um, imagine a father who thinks that in order to be that in order to be glorified as a father, he must make sure that his sons and his daughters remain absolutely passive at all times as he paints the house, as he does the gardening and the weeding, as he mows the lawn, as he takes out the trash, as he washes the car. In in, in fact, just to say it, you see the absurdity on the face of it, but but it's deeper than that because actually it's the opposite that is the truth. Isn't a father glorified most when he gives life to his sons and his daughters? He trains them, he matures them, he grows them up so that they become the kind of people who paint the house and take out the trash and mow the lawn and dig the weeds and wash the car and all the rest. I mean, isn't this exactly how a father is glorified? I mean, isn't this what shows forth his glory as a father? Well, and how many times have you watched uh, any kind of sporting event? They show the uh, parents of the athlete in the stands right after the athlete has done something mm-hmm. extraordinary. And you can see him slapping the guy next to him, you know, and saying, that's my boy. I taught him that, you know, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but yeah, which is this, another way of saying that he got glory, right? Right. Of course, got, he, of course the whole glory. family got glory, right? Uh, but in that, in that also, um, this question of stealing glory from God. And if you didn't think this way, Ken, then you can just tell me that I'm uh, – a bonkers Arminian trying to get inside a reformed person's head. Okay, but if there's this obsession with not taking any glory from God, I, I mean, does John Piper or did you ever think maybe I should, while I'm preaching to the congregation, be behind a screen and maybe distort my voice so that anybody who's agreeing with me isn't just doing it because they're really enamored by the way that Ken Hensley is presenting this, uh, you know, and that might steal glory from God <laughs> if they're looking at me and thinking about what a good speaker I am. I mean. Does that I even go through your head? That, or? I, I never thought that, but what you're saying makes sense. Obviously, what you're saying makes sense. If the idea is that in order for God to get all the glory, God must do everything, then it I mean, would you have to go like, you know, I want to take my name off of every book that I write so that nobody thinks that this is something that was clever that I came up with, you know? I mean, yeah. And when you're talking about watching, you know, sports events, I'm trying to imagine a father and mother sitting up in the stands. You know, watching his son, you know, break the world record in pole vaulting or something, and into saying, "Oh, but in order to be glorified as a father, I really should be the one down there pole vaulting, and my son shouldn't." I'd be. be like, "No way!" I mean, I don't, I don't want to break every bone in my body. No, thank you. Again, you have an objection that, on the surface, just seems entirely reasonable. I mean, when you say it, it sounds reasonable, right? You know that hey, you know, objection number one: if we have to do anything in order to enter heaven, then then obviously we've earned our salvation and we have something to boast. Objection number two, if we have to do anything, then that takes away from God's glory as the one who who, who, who brings salvation, God being glorified for the great work of salvation. But there's a third one too that is really deeply set in the Re- Reformation mindset. Objection number three, it goes like this. But God is infinitely holy, Matt, you need to you need to remember God is infinitely holy and he demands perfect holiness of those who would enter his presence. There's no way that God can look at our feeble faith, our feeble love, our feeble imperfect obedience and accept that. This is why we need to have the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Okay. This line of reasoning, as I said, is very deep in the Reformation view. And if I if I wanted to extend this thing, way, you know, the, this episode way longer than it ought to be, I could quote extensively from R.C. Sproul, from all from all kinds of Reformation theologians. 
But I do want to read from one. Here's how one Reformed theologian expresses this, this idea and this objection. If one is justified by a declaration of God received through faith alone, then one is declared righteous in Christ the moment one believes that the person and work of Christ, his righteousness, his perfect life of obedience, has been credited to one's account. Conversely, or looking now at the Catholic view, if one is justified by a process of sanctification that is never completed in one's lifetime, one does not have sufficient basis for acceptance with God. God, because of his perfect holiness, requires absolute and perfect obedience. Such obedience is only found in the sinless life of Christ. Okay? I want to read it slowly because I want the, you know, the, the logic of it and the sense of it and the, the, the passion of it even to, to come through. Okay? But now the answer. Several points we need to make. But the first is this. First of all, I would say, the basis of our acceptance with God is not the righteousness we possess, whether imputed to us, legal imputation, or infused into us. Okay? The basis of our acceptance with God, remember, is the sacrificial offering of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And however one understands the atonement, Matt, however we understand what happened as as our Lord hung on the cross, the atonement, what Scripture teaches us clearly is that through this offering, atonement was made for sin. The blood of the sacrifice has been taken to heaven, as it were, It's been sprinkled upon the altar in heaven, and from that moment, a river of living water has been flowing out from under this altar to make the desert of this sinful world blossom like a rose. And it blows my mind that the first reading in Mass this morning was from that passage in Ezekiel that describes the water flowing out from under the altar, okay? And of course, that's a symbolic way of explaining it, but what we believe then is that when Christ's offering for sin was made, and the blood of that offering sprinkled upon the altar, this river of living water begins to flow out, meaning the blessings of the new covenant begin to flow out to, to those who will receive them. And from that moment, my point is this, God looks at those who respond in faith to Christ as a father looks at his children with infinite love and with mercy. He forgives the sins of those who repent and turn from idols to serve the living God. He regenerates us. He begins the work of remolding us into the perfect image of Christ, the image in which we were created. And yes, I would say to these Reformed voices, yes, of course, by the time we enter God's presence in heaven, of course, we will have been completely transformed. We will be perfectly righteous by that time. But the idea which is contained in this quotation that I read from the Reformed theologian, the idea that God cannot accept us now unless we are perfect, and therefore, unless we have perfectly kept God's law, or we have the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to our account, the idea that God cannot accept us now is simply not biblical at all. Yeah, and Ken, I'm one of those people who was not in that mindset like the Reformed theologian you described because, among other things, I'd read some C.S. Lewis. And I'd read specifically Mm -hmm. uh, the Screwtape Letters, which talks about this idea of God looking upon us as children, you know, who 
he wants to obey, to learn to obey. Mm-hmm. There's this mm-hmm. great passage in one of the chapters, and uh, of course, screw tape letters, the senior demon instructing a lesser demon on how to really mess up human beings. Right. And right. Uh, the senior demon says to the lesser demon, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get possession of a soul, God relies on the troughs even more than the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper struggles than anyone else. But he goes on to say, he says, uh, but he wants them to learn to walk. And therefore, he sometimes must take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he's pleased even with their stumbles. And he goes on to say, yeah, which, our, which is portraying God as a loving father. Right. He's pleased even with their stumbling. See, that, that, there's another way of saying it, Matt, is, is that in the strict Reformation point of view, until you have the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to your account so that God looks at you and sees perfection, he, he, he cannot look at you with these eyes of mercy. He cannot accept you. I mean, it, it sounds kind of weird to say it that way, but that's what's being said. He, he, he can't accept you. And yet, I find this to be entirely unbiblical. I think C.S. Lewis said it well there, but in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is, and I quote, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. That's Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus said it in different words. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what this means is that if you read the Gospels, Jesus revealed to the world the true face of the Father. We can look at Jesus and we can know who the Father is. And I've got to say, the faith that, the face that Jesus revealed was the face of kindness and mercy to those who will repent, those who are willing to take up their cross and follow him, turn from their idols to serve the living God. It's the face of someone who could say to a sinful woman, a woman known to be sinful, who is weeping and washing his feet with her tears, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say to her, until you have righteousness credited to your account, um, I cannot accept you. <laughs> Instead, he and looks at her. And if you do, his, it doesn't matter whether or not you repent. You know, I mean, well, I, mean I guess yes, that's the character of the position, but still. Forgiven. And we've looked at this previously, but I think maybe the clearest picture that Jesus ever gave to us of what the Father in heaven is like was in the story that he told about the young man who took his father's inheritance and ran off to a foreign land and wasted it. Okay, we all know the story. When he was at the very bottom, he came to his senses. He returned home beaten and broken. His father looks out and he sees his son coming over the hills. And well, notice first what the father didn't say to his son. He didn't say anything like this. He didn't say, son, I see that you are sincerely repentant. I see that you have a desire to come home, but I need to explain to you, your imperfect repentance does not provide sufficient basis for my acceptance of you, nor your imperfect desire to come home. You will need to have a perfect righteousness credited to your account before I can accept you. So see me when you've got that in order. Nothing like that. And I, I'm sure you can almost paraphrase. What does Jesus say? He says, when he was yet at a distance, his father saw him. His father had compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
the son begins to try to say, Father, Father, I'm not worried to be I'm not worthy to be your son. Please accept me and let me be a hired slave. But before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the father is saying to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and make merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to make merry. And this goes back exactly to what you were saying at the beginning of it. What is conversion? It is a turning away from idols. Uh, you know, that's kind of it is essence, what it really is. And what does the son do? He turns away from the idol he'd made of money, the idol he made of, uh, depending on what your translation says, you know, lascivious living, uh, his idol of his own plan of what his life mm -hmm. should look like. He turned away from those idols. He came to the point where he was willing to turn around, and that's all that was needed. You know, just a glimmer of faith was needed, just a glimmer of repentance, a glimmer of, of a desire to return or a desire to turn from idols to serve, just a glimmer of it. And the father is running to him. I mean, he can't even, he, he doesn't even want to hear what the son has to say about becoming a servant or a slave or something. He, he's so excited. He doesn't want to hear it. Well, this is the face of the Father toward those who are willing to turn from their idols and serve the living God, even imperfectly, even feebly. You know, and I think again about the man who said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. That, that, that's all that's required. Lord, I love, help me to love more. Lord, I want to obey. Lord, I've been stuck, you know, serving this idol and I want to turn, help me to turn. That's all that's needed. That's all that's needed. And that's the, basically the view, um, that's basically the Catholic view on this situation and uh, the way that I would answer those three objections that are commonly made. Okay, what we're going to do next week, I know we've kind of gone long, we're going to conclude our discussion of justification by walking through the basic elements of the Catholic doctrine using the New Testament some, but looking mainly at the decree on justification from the Council of Trent. Because I know that many Protestants will say, oh, well, you're describing this using biblical terms. You're, 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 you're giving us a very Bible-only kind of orientation. But the Catholic Church, what it actually teaches, is very different than that. So we're going to look at the Council of Trent next week to show that this is not a damning system of works righteousness that we've come to embrace. But at least we've laid the ground this week to kind of give you an understanding, the structure of how Catholics think mm -hmm. about salvation that'll help you. Hope you get your head around what we talk about next time around. Well, Ken, another sunset, another sunrise. Swiftly flow these YouTube recordings and these podcast episodes. And I'm looking forward to next time around. You, are a, that. you are a profound a man Am in the I? things you say. I'm just, I borrow Very poetic. I borrow very poetic. That's, uh, <laughs> but at any rate, if you appreciate what you're hearing and uh, would like to join the conversation in any capacity, by all means, visit us at chnetwork.org. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to any of the podcast uh, servers that hosts these uh, brilliant, you know, meditations from the mind of Ken. And check us out at chnetwork.org. We would love to hear from you, especially if you're on any kind of journey towards the Catholic faith or even just checking it out to see what's going on. I'm Matt Swaim and my colleague Ken Hensley. We're just glad you're here. Thank you so much for being a part of this. We'll talk to you next week. Good to see you, Matt.